Well, here's a fill-in-the-blank question. So I'm going to read what someone has said, and you will fill in the blank for me. He said, this is the glory of our religion. So I want you to think about what is this? This is the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock on which it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory. So what do you think is the glory of the church, the rock on which the church is built? What would you uh, say to fill in that blank, Dick? Okay. Okay, Christ crucified. That's a good answer. Anybody else want to <laughs> try to fill in the blank? Hard to improve on that one, right? Well, surprisingly, that is not the answer <laughs> that this person stated. I'll give you one guess who said it. Anybody want to guess? No. John Owen. Yes. John Owen said, this is the glory of our religion. Now, what was he talking about? He was talking about what we call the hypostatic union, uh, which is the union of the natures of Christ, uh, the divine nature and the human nature united into one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he was making the point that although things like justification are what our salvation is built on, our justification really is not effective unless it is a justification done by the Son of God who is in the flesh, someone who is God and man. And so that's why he said this union of the human and divine nature is the glory of the church. So uh, over these next few weeks, uh, four weeks, the month of December, we're going to be studying the person of Jesus Christ in Sunday school. We're going to answer questions, or at least try to answer questions like, how could it be that Jesus is God, and yet Jesus says he doesn't know the day of his return. If God knows everything, how can Jesus not know something and still be God? Or questions like, and can it be? You know that song? And can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So can it really be that God can die? How is that possible? Or, how could it be that the Son of God, the one who holds everything together, is what the Bible says, uh, he was holding the body of Mary, the Virgin Mary, together, as Mary was giving birth to the Son of God in flesh, the very one as the Son of God who was holding her together at that very moment. How can that be possible? How does that even work? So we'll try to answer all those kinds of questions in the next few weeks. Uh, that's a little bit of a teaser because we're not going to get to those this week. Um, but 
you might wonder, are all these questions just speculations? Do they really matter for our life? Are we just going to sit up in ivory towers and think about all these deep things that don't really matter? Well, you are going to have to put on your thinking caps, and maybe especially today. This is, this is a hard one to think about what we're talking about today. But we need to remember that this is the glory of our religion, of Christianity. It's the foundation of our salvation. In the London Baptist Confession, we have a chapter 2 about God. And they don't talk about Christ until chapter 8. They mention in chapter 2 that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but they don't really talk about it. And then they go on into the, the works of God, like uh, creation, his providence, his decrees. Then it gets into mankind and how we fell. That's chapter 6. And then chapter 7 begins the part about salvation in the confession. And then we get to chapter 8 in the confession, which is about Christ the mediator. So it's interesting that they start to talk about Christ and how he is God and man in chapter 8, not in chapter 2. And they're making the same point that John Owen is making. That the reason we're talking about it in chapter 8 is because this is essential to understanding how Christ is our Savior. How Christ is the mediator. He must be the Son of God who has taken on flesh. All right, so today we're going to start at the beginning, the foundation of all of this, which is actually starting before the beginning of time. We're going all the way back to eternity past, before God created the world. So today we're going to talk about who is this Son of God? Who is the Son of God before he took on flesh? He became incarnate. And the reason we need to talk about this is because we need to understand that it was truly God, fully God, the very God of very God, the essence of God who became a man to save us. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifested in the flesh. Notice he doesn't say the Son of God. Uh, that is true that it was the Son of God. But he wants to make the point it was the very God who became flesh. John 1 tells us the Word, the Son of God, he is the one who became flesh. But the Bible wants to make clear that this Word, this Son, is fully of the essence of God. There is no salvation if it isn't the full God becoming flesh. And so we want to see how the Son of God is not a lesser God in any way than the Father, and yet in some way he is also distinct from the, from the Father and from the Spirit. So, um, there's a $20 theology word that I want you to learn if you haven't heard this word before. This is what we're going to talk about today. It is the word eternal generation. Eternal generation. Or some synonyms for that would be the eternal begetting or coming forth. That's what generate means, uh, to beget or to come forth. Or we could even use the word birthing. 
but we have to clarify what that means. The eternal birthing or generation or begetting of the Son. That's what we're talking about. So the Bible says that, we, that uh, the Son eternally comes forth from the Father. He is eternally begotten by the Father. And so you see that with this word begotten, which we're going to see is a word the Bible uses, there's an analogy with human fathers procreating sons. Fathers beget children. But we have to stop at the analogy and not go too far with it uh, because uh, we know that the father doesn't generate his son spiritually, talking about the son of God, Uh, doesn't generate him physically, but spiritually, and he's not creating the son. So we'll talk about that. But this is also done eternally. There was never a time when the son did not exist. There's no beginning for the son. So he is begotten from the father, but he never begins to exist. So he's not like a human son who is created, who at one point doesn't exist and then exists. The son is always being begotten by the father. Uh, An early church father named Cyril of Jerusalem, he says, whenever you hear of God begetting, do not sink down in thought to bodily things, nor think of a bodily generation or you will sink down into impiety. God is a spirit. His generation or his begetting is spiritual. For bodies beget bodies. And for the generation of bodies, there must be time. But there is no time in the generation of the Son from the Father. Okay, so use the word begetting, but hopefully that distinguishes this from a human begetting or procreating. So here's what one modern theologian, uh, Matthew Barrett, he defines eternal generation like this. He says, from all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple, undivided, divine essence to the Son. So from all eternity, The whole time that God has existed, always, the Father has always been communicating, giving his essence, his being as God to his Son. Okay, so I hope you got that that simple one. Now I'm going to read a little more complicated definition. Uh, Francis Turton, he says, All generation communicates essence. So to generate is to communicate an essence. Okay, so ducks have, this is me, not him talking, ducks have children. And what are they passing on? They're passing on the essence of what it is to be a duck. Okay, so uh, if, if you have a baby duck born without a leg, it's still a duck, right? So there's something about ducks that is the essence of ducks. It's, it is duckness. So duckness gets passed on 
from duck to duck. And humans do the same thing. They pass on humanity, which is the image of God. So that's what being, is being passed on. So in the same way, God is passing on, the Father is passing his essence, his godness to his son. Okay, so he, sa- so he says, uh, this wonderful generation is rightly expressed as a communication of essence from the Father by which the Son possesses indivisibly, without division, the same essence with him and is made perfectly like him. And since there is never a beginning to this begetting, the Son possesses the fullness of the essence without dividing the essence. So he's mentioning a couple times this word division. So it's not like when you take a plant and you can cut the stem of a plant and then you can plant it and you can create a new plant. But what's, what's happened to the original plant? It's lost something. And so they're trying to make the point that when God is giving his essence, he's not losing anything. I should say the Father. I keep saying God. Sorry. The Father is not losing He's not having something divided from himself or cut off. He is constantly communicating without losing it. Okay, so if your brain is not melted yet, let's keep going. But that's basically what the definition is. Um, One more thing to clarify, though. Uh, We're talking about the Father and the Son. We're not talking about the spirit. The spirit will have to do sometime later. (laughs) So the father is the only one who begets. The son is the only one who is begotten. The son does not beget the father. He does not communicate his essence to the father. He does not communicate his essence to the spirit. He doesn't beget the spirit. The father doesn't beget the spirit, okay? So this is only a relationship between father and son. And this is what the Bible says. All right. So you might be wondering, okay, where did all this, all these fancy big words come from? Uh, We don't see the words eternal generation in the Bible, but we do see the concept. And so what usually happens in history, in the church, is that there is a problem. Usually a heretic comes around And they start preaching stuff, and they start writing these books. And then the church, as Christians are reading scripture, they say, well, that guy isn't lining up with what we understand the Bible to say. So we have to respond, and we have to explain why he's wrong. And so that's what happened here. So in the 300s, very early in the church, there is a heresy called Arianism. Now, I'm guessing some of you have heard of this. So can somebody, does anybody know the basic heresy that was Arianism? John? If I remember correctly, it's that uh, Christ was not the same substance as the Father. Yes. Yes, so the Son was different in his divinity or in his essence as the Father. And so basically, uh, Arianism taught that the Son was created by the Father. The Son was God. And so the Arians, they would read the Bible, and they would say, oh yeah, I believe, 
I believe he's the son of God. But they would define that differently. The son as literally created by the father. And so they said, well, the son of God is very important. He's very powerful. God, the father, created the world through the son. Uh, we, we, we believe they would say that the son came down to earth to save sinners. But what they could not accept was that the son was eternally equal with the father. They said he had to be created at some point. Even though he is a God, he had to be a created God, created by the Father. And by the way, uh, all heresies get recycled, and so Jehovah's Witnesses, today, they are Arians. So uh, maybe you will talk to people who will make these same arguments. So there was a point, they would say, where the Son was not. He did not exist. And guess what they pointed to? Guess what scriptures they quoted? John, John 3.16. He's only begotten son. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Well, if he's begotten, well, when a father begets his children, those children don't exist in eternity, those children come into existence. And so look, they would say, we believe the Bible. The Son is created. He is begotten by the Father. And they would quote verses also like John 14, verse 28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. So how do we understand that? The Father is greater than I. Uh, this is a side side note, but this is why we need to understand the Bible in light of what things like the creeds teach us and what, what the church teaches us. We all agree that the Bible is the final authority, but uh, Arians and other heretics, they can say the Bible is their final authority, but then they redefine the Bible, what the Bible says. And so what we need is the church and, and what the church has taught, like in the creeds, to help us to understand and define the terms that are in the Bible. And then we look to the Bible and say, okay, is this actually in Scripture? So, so that's what the Arians were doing. Now, the church responded to them and tried to define what it meant like John 3.16, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And so they called the Council of Nicaea. Uh, in 325, they came out with a creed, the Nicene Creed, and then they updated it, and changed uh, some things, and added some things. And so the Nicene Creed that we usually use is from 381. So I hope you have read it. I hope you know about it and know what it says because this is what all Christians believe, what all non-heretical Christians have always believed about Father, Son, and Spirit. So here's what the Nicene Creed says about Jesus. Maybe this sounds familiar. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
the only begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. So uh, you see there that they are making very specific statements to try to rule out what the Arians were teaching. So they say he's begotten of the Father, and then they clarify he is God of God. He's completely equal with God, completely of the same being. Light of light, very God of very God. And then they say begotten, not made. So that's very important. They're, they're clarifying that for the Son to be begotten does not mean that he was created by the Father. He has always existed. He's always begotten of the Father. So, eternal generation is important to understand because it's the only way to understand that the Son is completely equal with the Father. How else do you explain it? And yet, the Son is also distinct from the Father. There are three persons in the Trinity. The Son is different from the Father. And so the only way to explain how that works is now we have this theology word, uh, eternal generation. Okay, let's open your Bibles now. John chapter 1. Does anybody have a King James Bible? No. Okay. Uh, John 1, verse 14. And the Word, meaning the Son of God, who was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the reason I asked if there's a King James Version among us is that in my ESV, it's, it says the word only Son. Anybody have anything that says something different? Is that New King James? So, yes. <laughs> yeah. You, you people with internet, yeah. Yes. So, for some reason, um, I won't get into it, but uh, the modern versions, a lot of them uh, use the word only instead of what it actually says is only begotten. He is the only begotten son from the father. Then in verse 18, verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. 
He has made him known. Walt, do you want to read that one? In? <laughs> no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Yes. So there, uh, they add again, begotten, which is what it actually says, the only begotten. And there in the King James, they actually use the word son. They're talking about the son instead of God uh, in general. So no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten son, he has seen God, and he's been in the bosom of the father. He's the one who is revealing God to us. So I think those are two very clear examples of these words that we're using of how the Son is the only begotten of the Father. Now turn over to John chapter 3. And we'll, we're just a couple more examples of the same thing. Uh, 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We probably all memorized this in the King James when we were kids. Uh, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that is who the son is. He is the only begotten. And then down in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. Now let's look at chapter 5, verse 26. This is not using the word begotten, uh, but it's explaining the truth of it. So John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is a brain-twisting verse here. The Father has life in himself. So the Father depends upon nobody. He just exists. He has eternally existed. Okay, so that's what it means to have life in himself. He doesn't depend on anything for life. Now he says the son also has life in himself. The son also depends upon nothing created to have life. But how does the son have life in himself? It's been granted to him. It's been given to him by the father. And so we see that from eternity, the Father has granted the godness, the divinity, to his Son. So the Son always has life in himself because he's being given that uh, aspect or attribute of God, if you want to call it that, the essence of God. He's been giving, being given that from the Father. Okay, let's look at one more passage in Hebrews chapter 1.
going to read um, verses 1 to 5, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this is the Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We see that verse 5 uses that word again, begotten, which is quoting Psalm 2. Um, it seems that it is talking about uh, the Son being begotten from eternity, because that's one of the things that makes him greater than angels. Contrast with angels that are created, the Son is not created. Uh, so, that uh, is probably one, one verse that also mentions uh, this, but I want to focus on verse 3 especially. Verse 3, talking about the sun, uses an analogy. Uh, I always uh, cringe when, when people try to use analogies for the Trinity, and, and I'm sure you know the ones people use about eggs and H2O, you know, water, water liquid, ice, and steam, and now that's the Trinity, and, and they all break down, so they make me crunch. But there is one analogy, I think, in the Bible, uh, at least for the Father and the Son. It, it doesn't mention the three, but it mentions two. And the analogy is the radiance, the, the light, the light that shines forth. The Son is the radiance of the glory of of God. So how do you separate the radiance from the radiator? You can't really. They are different. That's why we have different words. There is a radiance and then there's something that radiates. They're different, but at what point do they separate? At what point does the sun become something different from the sunbeam? the rays of the sun. And so that's the analogy, the analogy of light here. The light that is radiated comes from God, from the Father. So it's the same, but it's also different because it's the radiance of God. He is not uh, the, the Father himself. A Puritan, John Arrowsmith, he says, ask the sun if we're, if we're ever without its beams. Ask the fountain if it ever were without its streams. And so God was never without his son. 
They always have to be together. If you're going to have the sun, the sun has beams. And so the father always has his son. Augustine gives a similar analogy. He says, as the fire begets shining, but the fire does not come before the shining in time, the father begets the son, but does not come before him in time. Okay, so as soon as you have fire, you have shining. But they're different. The the fire gives birth to the shining. So the father begets the son. So, what is the difference between the father and son? They are completely equal. They are both completely God. Uh, They have one being, one essence, one will. Uh, the, The difference is their relationship. One is the begetter. One is the begotten. And that's essentially the only difference between the persons of the Trinity, between the Father and Son. Well, I want to end with one application. So I, I like to compare the God of the Bible, the Christian God, to Allah. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to Muslims and have tried to study a lot about Islam. And so Muslims believe that their God is completely sovereign. There are not many Arminian type of of Muslims, if you know what I mean. Um, They truly believe God, to be God, by definition, he has to be sovereign. He has to be in control of absolutely everything. But what that means for them is that Allah can do absolutely anything that he wants. He could wake up tomorrow and he could decide that it's okay for you to steal. And he can just change his commands. He can just change his morality of what's right and wrong. Because that's what it means to be sovereign for them. And so because he's sovereign, Muslims, they really have absolutely no assurance of salvation. They try to do what he has revealed through Muhammad, but... They, at the end of the day, they know they could die and Allah could just say, yeah, I don't feel like letting you into paradise. And so he, he can do whatever he wants. He can change his mind at the last minute. And so, uh, you know, some of you grew up Catholic, Roman Catholic, but this is like even more than that. Because in Roman Catholicism, at least God tells you what to do. And if you do these things, you can get a reward. That's what Catholics believe. But in Islam, you can do all these things. And you're not sure if Allah will accept you in paradise. So what is the difference between the God Allah and Yahweh, the God of the Bible? Allah is one God in one person. He is not by his nature a God of love. It's not part of his essence. Allah, the only part of his essence is that he is sovereign, but not that he is love. But the difference with Yahweh is that his essence is love. He is by his being 
someone who gives of himself. Allah can do loving things every now and then when he wants to, but it's not part of who he is. Now, how do we know that the Lord is love of his essence? It's because he has a son. The father has a son. And as long as the father has existed, which is eternity, he has always existed as someone who is giving himself, giving his essence, his divinity to his son. So for God, love is not an action that he decides to do every now and then. It's part of his nature. And that's why 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. He doesn't say God loves. He says God is love. He has always loved from eternity. There's never a moment where God didn't love. But that requires someone to love. He always loved his son. And so now, Christians, through the Son, we get to be part of that love of God the Father. Through the Son, we receive the love that the Son has always received from eternity. Jesus says in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Do you understand a little better now? As the Father has loved me. From eternity, the Father has always given everything he has to me. So I have loved you, Jesus says. In John 17, verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Son is in the Father. And now he says that we can join and be with them, receiving that love that the Father has for the Son. So Gregory of Nazianzen, a church father, he said, Generation is beyond the sphere of time and above the grasp of reason. And some of you might be thinking, yes. That is way above my grasp of reason. And yes, it's true. This is is a very difficult concept to wrap our minds around. But it matters for our worship of God. And I hope that it helps us understand something of the love that God now has for us. Let's pray together. Our God, we praise you for being the great eternal God whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts and ways are higher than our ways. And yet we thank you for your abounding, steadfast love and mercy to sinners like us. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in the Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, Son of God, for justifying us, making us 
righteous in the eyes of a father so that we can receive his love. Help us to praise and worship you. May you receive our praises uh, this morning as we come to you again and have our hearts filled with songs, seeking your face in prayer. And we pray that you would speak to us again through your word. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen.